Welcome to the first ever episode of the Girl at the Game podcast. And boy, do we have a guest for you today. Guys, we are bringing you the Jessica freaking Mendoza. Yeah, but we should probably introduce ourselves first. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game. Hey, Gab. Hi, Al. I'm Alexandra Francisco of New England Sports Network. And we are so excited to have our very first episode feature the one and only Jess Mendoza, trailblazing woman in the booth and woman in sports in general. First woman to call Sunday Night Baseball, four-time All-American softball player, Olympic medalist. First woman to call a college World Series game in the booth. She's basically done it all. Yeah, she's a really important guest for us because as two young women in this industry, she's someone that we've really looked up to and someone who showed us that there is a place for women who want to work in sports despite the relentless shit she gets just for doing her job yeah i mean she basically said a more polite version of what like 10 former mlb players working in sports broadcasting said and she got demoted and none of them did we're just so thankful to how candid she was speaking to us about so many aspects of her career I think we should stop talking about the interview and just give them the interview. Maybe play the interview? Yeah, maybe just like... Let's play the interview. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Jess Mendoza. Thank you so much for coming on and being our inaugural guest. This is the biggest honor. We couldn't ask for a more perfect... Inaugural? You didn't tell me that. I'm so excited. That is oh, awesome. yes. We were trying to figure out, you know, who would be the most girl power, absolute boss guest to have on to launch this podcast. And we both were like, Joss Mendoza. They're... Oh, I love you guys. So you've been homeschooling your sons long before all of this started. And so I, we wanted to start off by asking, because you're probably doing it today, how did you get into homeschooling and what's it been like? Has it been different since all of this started? Like more stressful? Is it less stressful because it's something that you guys are used to? So I was homeschooling them for almost three years headed into this year. And we actually put them in school this year. So this is the first year I have a kindergartner and a fourth grader um, that they were in school. And so, yeah, it's been an adjustment just because we've had a full year of them really just like being able to be at school. And what I'm learning with my fourth grader is that he enjoys school because of the social, which I think is a lot of people. But some students are just like, they have to put up with the social just to do the do, do like the cool stuff at school, like the work and stuff. Whereas my son just puts up with the work so that he can be with his friends. And so right now that we've removed all of his friends from the school aspect, he's just not a fan. And so <laughs> just trying to get him to buy in to math and reading and all the different things that he, he would do fine before, but it was because he was doing it with his friends. Just kind of interesting, I think, for any person to think about, like, I know a lot of the jobs that I've enjoyed and the things that I do is because of the social, right? So it doesn't even feel like work because you're just naturally being able to engage and connect with other people. But if my work was siloed into like an office, if I was just in a room all day long, just hammering out work, I would not be happy. Whereas other people, that's heaven. They don't even have to see another person all day and can just get their work done. That's like for sure. So anyway, it's it let me kind of get some insight on the pers different personalities of different kids and on honestly, even adults. 
I work from home usually like three days a week. And I think that there's such a huge difference between working from home by choice and working from home because you're not allowed to leave your house. You do feel like much more confined when you didn't feel that way before. I didn't realize that your kids started going to school this year. Just as they started going to school, now they're back in homeschooling. Yeah, it's definitely been a change. And mostly just because, like, you want to give them their independence, too. I mean, that's the coolest part about when they go off to school is, like, you're entrusting their teachers and them to do their stuff. But when they're here in front of you, and I'm, like, constantly, like, micromanaging is what I, you know, I feel bad because I'm always like, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know? Whereas normally mom wouldn't be there. So that's where, you know, the battles and the challenge of parenting, because I think it's one thing to parent just normally, but then to have to be the teacher that parents and kind of like cross that line for them, um, because they know they can get away with more. They know that they can talk to you in a different way. So it's just, oh my gosh, it's such a challenge every day. But then there's moments where it's pretty cool. Uh, We did a music lesson yesterday that was awesome. We were high-fiving each other because neither of us know nothing about music. And his music teacher sent this whole deal playing the piano. And so we were playing a virtual piano together and we kept messing up. It was like a game. Like you had to get the beats right. And we just kept messing up on the same chord. And then finally we got it. And we were like hugging and high-fiving. <laughs> we were like, yes. <laughs> it was probably the most basic. It'd be probably like the equivalent of like someone trying to hit a baseball off of a tee you know, and not knowing anything about the sport. And it's like, oh, I hit the ball that's not even moving on a stick. Hooray. Like, that's how, like, amateur we are in the world of music. (laughs) The small victories, right? Yes, exactly. No, and honestly, the first thing my son did when he woke up was like, mom, can we do more music? Which was, like, hilarious (laughs) because we're both so bad at it. But because I was invested with him, and I was doing it with him and failing. So we were doing it together. It was like, it was, it was fun. And honestly, then I learned something. But the point is, is like, it, not all of it's like that. And it's just this balance of like getting to enjoy some of it and then also wanting to strangle them and throw them out the window. So, you know, that just nice little balance. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that balance, I know we were have our opening day at Fenway Park yesterday. Obviously, baseball should be going on right now and isn't. What does ESPN have you guys doing right now in your day-to-day? Are you working from your homes exclusively and balancing having your kids running around and trying to focus? What's that been like for you? Well, I'm pretty blessed because I've had a home studio here, and it's actually in our shop, which is a separate building from the house. So uh, we actually moved to Oregon from California about seven months ago. So when we did that, they built a home studio here just to be able to do like breaking news hits and certain things. And thank goodness. I mean, if anyone obviously has been watching ESPN sees everyone in the little box right now, pretty much any news or any television at all that is live. There's a bunch of heads and boxes of people at home. So it's actually been pretty good. Um, we've been doing a lot. What they're trying to do is stay seasonally. So like right now, we did a ton of in and around what would have been opening day, talking about like top five pitching rotations and, you know, just all these things to kind of just like what we would normally be talking about uh, and giving like updated news on what we know, Jeff Passan, all of that. And then it's kind of died out. And then I've been doing a lot of our college softball stuff because that we'd be heading into, you know, postseason and the Women's College World Series so it's been kind of fun. We're, we're ranking the top college softball hitters of all time. So my name's on that list. It's 32 hitters, and they did it by, like, college stats. So I happen to make – I'm in the first round. I don't even know if I'll get it past the first 32, but there's a ton of – from anywhere in the 80s to the modern-day college softball hitter. And 
it's been really fun. It's actually seven innings podcast and we vote and we have the fans vote. So if you go on their Twitter handle, they're having everyone vote for the top hitters in the first round. And it's super fun. <laughs> like I've been watching like my teammates and everyone who's voting and ragging on each other and at the end, we'll be a champion here in a couple of weeks. So anyway, the, stuff like that. And that's all through ESPN to try to be unique and kind of find a space to engage with fans that are looking for sports that we can't show them live, but we can still get into debates and topics. And I don't know, at least in this case, like I'm having a ton of fun because I'm getting to see like, you know, the history of, of softball and, you know, that anticipation of like, who's going to win like fans. And of course, we on the podcast get a vote too. I think it's hilarious that a four-time first-team All-American doesn't think she'd make it far into the rounds. But besides that point, obviously, collegiate athletes totally lost their spring season this year. The Olympics are being pushed back an entire year as both a former collegiate softball player and Olympian. Just like your perspective, like what you think these athletes are going through, say seniors in college or Olympians that may be close to retirement or have been putting so much time and effort and really like a life's work into preparing for this stage and to get it potentially like ripped away and pushed back a year. Can you imagine what you would be thinking if you were in that position? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things with the NCAA that they've done, which is a really good thing, is offered the athletes the opportunity to come back next year for the spring sports, which is huge. So obviously softball and baseball. So if you are a senior and you only played those, I know for softball, 26 games, you can actually end up getting four and a half years and come back next year. And it creates a ton of complications. I'm not saying that that's going to be simple, but the fact that the NCAA is offering eligibility for basically a fifth year. And honestly, even you think about it, if you're a freshman, right, um, and you are getting mm-hmm. gypped of, you know, two thirds of your freshman year, now you're basically starting again as a freshman next year, a year older, and you got four years ahead of you if you so choose. Now, the Ivy League is one of the only conferences that I've heard of now that's denying those fifth years, meaning they want them to graduate and they will not allow them to come back and play, which is sad. It's also a testament to their priority, which I also understand of being a student first, and they want them to graduate in four years and move on. But it's definitely a debatable topic if you are, let's say, at Harvard and you're super smart and you're going to have a great career in life in academics, but you love the game that you play and you want that extra year, which, hello, I mean, I went to Stanford, like I would have, I would have played, I would have been on the 15 year, like if I could have, right? Like, and I chose a school that was academics first and I put academics before athletics always, but in my core, in my heart, like I want to play if I can. So yeah, I, like for those seniors, they definitely need that fifth year. Almost everyone will have that opportunity. It sounds like the Ivy League will not. But what you are going to see, guys, is a lot of transfers because of it. Because I know if I'm at Harvard and I get my degree in four and my conference says, sorry, you can't play next year, even though you have another year of eligibility, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Put my name Leave in that portal and get me to another school. I was reading the thing about the NCAA's like ruling and I saw that Harvard was considering taking part in this new arrangement, but they hadn't decided yet. And it's also interesting because the MLB draft is shortened to five rounds this year and then 20 rounds next year. And so it'll be interesting to see which MLB potential draft athletes for this year will choose to go back to school for next year. You know, it's a huge risk if you don't think that you're a guaranteed 
you know, one through five round pick. Well, and I think either way, it's a downside for baseball. I feel like just for the draftees alone, because you're going to, I mean, obviously any first or second rounders, we're going to get paid. We're going to get their money no matter what. And they will, because it's still those first five rounds. But what I feel like is for a lot of, you know, if you're a senior in high school that was, you know, kind of like, okay, I don't really know what round, but I was going to get drafted and going to get, you know, a team that was interested in me. I hope now you decide to go to college, which I feel like my bias is that's the choice that you should make anyway. Unless, of course, if you're a first or second round pick, they you would go. But now if you're thinking I might be fifth round, but I could end up sixth through 10, I'm going to college. I'm going to get my education. Yeah, I have to wait three years before I can get drafted again. But I mean, I'd rather those athletes be in college instead of the minor leagues getting their education. That's my personal opinion. And then for juniors that are in college that wanted to get drafted again, if you're not in the first five rounds, like you know guaranteed that I would be drafted in the third round, then yeah, go back for your senior year. Get your degree. I mean, the other thing is the statistic that I think it's something like over 79% of minor leaguers don't make it to the major leagues. And you've been pretty vocal about how the minor leaguers need to be taken care of in this time and what's going on with the minor leagues. It seems like a large part of this is Major League Baseball trying to use this as a way to kind of aid them in their quest to eliminate minor league teams because any players who get signed by minor league teams but aren't drafted are not on MLB payroll. It'll force teams to either go to independent leagues or fold. And minor leaguers are hopefully finally going to get paid during this shutdown, which was not a guarantee. But what do you think about all of this stuff? Because I think that right now it's a time for minor league teams to kind of finally figure out how they're going to kind of find some footing in this battle with MLB before the fall when their agreement expires. Well, I think they're still going to lose players. And I don't mean lose them because they're choosing to not But I think there's a lot of players in the system that rely on the training facilities. And I, when I worked with the Mets, you know, just spending time at the instructional camps and, you know, in and around spring training and and really the facilities that would be in place where you see these players from 8 a.m. to 8 at night, they're getting their weight training, they're getting their nutrition, they're getting BP, they're getting ground balls. There's a large percentage of players that don't have a place to go home to where they can even get a third of that. And a lot of them don't even live here in the U.S., so then it's even more complicated with going home to come back and where do they go. I just feel like we're going to lose a lot of players that are not going to be training this entire time because they can't. They don't have the facilities. I mean, think about it. If you don't have like a home gym or and you're talking about baseball players, it's not like you and me wanting to go work out and run or do something. They've got to be doing very specific stuff that you need a facility to do. And they're not making money. So it's not like they have, you know, the the means to go and buy all the equipment. Shoot, and even have someone throw in batting practice. I mean, most of the states in this country, that wouldn't even be allowed right now to be leaving your house to go somewhere to play. So I'm just curious over the next few months, you know, how many, you know, players we see that don't end up being able to come back or get cut because they're not meeting a certain standard, even though they're getting paid. I don't think enough because a lot of these players rely on those facilities to be able to get their day in day out training. Speaking of day in and day out training, one thing we wanted to ask all of our guests kind of during this quarantine period, especially those that have very strong athletic backgrounds like yourself, 
I'm sure staying fit is a big part of your life. And with gyms closed, what types of like workouts have you been doing at home? Yeah, it's actually been kind of fun. I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoy working out. It's like something that I guess because it's gone hand in hand my whole life. It, my dad was a coach. And so I grew up like we had workouts from like the moment I could walk. So good or bad, like it's always been something that's a part of my life. And so I've really enjoyed exploring what everyone else is doing and then implementing all of my own stuff. It's been really cool. I have old teammates that are um, posting every day different workouts. Um, there's been an amazing community of people just sending out free programs and you know, I've spread it to my own family members and then we're challenging each other on different, you know, six week challenges or, you know, all these different things. And I've never seen more opportunity for information on how to do a home workout. I mean, I saw one today, actually this morning on YouTube, using your shoes, like how you could take your shoes off and use them in your hands to like do different <laughs> things. And then like sacks of flour, like going and getting like from your pantry, literally taking a tour through your pantry. Hey, use this as like overhead tricep curls and all this stuff. I was, I was dying, but I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so creative. And honestly, something like that would not have gotten any hits because people would be like, why am I using my shoes and my smelly <laughs> shoes and sacks of flour to work out when I could easily go to the gym? Well, everyone's looking for ways to be creative. So I just, I feel like it's it's a really good time for community in that way. And mine have varied. My biggest thing is making sure I get outside. I go on a walk. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big runner. So I like to just be outside walking or honestly playing football or something with my kids. I, I just the sun and the vitamin D has been my piece. And then I have like my get after it workouts, which honestly don't really last more than 40 minutes because I don't like, that's probably why I don't like running. I don't like to do things for a very long time. (laughs) Um, So I like to just do something really hard for like 20 to 40 minutes where I'm like huffing and puffing and ready to die, but I'm done. And that's like just dumbbells and kettlebells and I have a rower and just kind of different things. We have an entire pickleball court too in our shop. So we've kind of stopped. We had a tournament going on just with family, my parents and my sister and brother-in-law and my husband. And um, we all had tournaments like going on. It was really funny, like taking each other on and getting competitive and yelling at each other, which I think we could still continue because of the social distancing, but we've kind of quieted it for now just until things kind of go over. I love that though. That Like you mentioned growing up with a father as a coach and then just how competitive things get with your family. Obviously sports have been such a huge part of your life. And I'm wondering how your career in sports broadcasting has manifested from that to kind of give our listeners just like the cliff note rundown of how you got into this field and what opportunities kind of presented themselves for you to finagle your way in or if this is something you've always kind of had your sights set on. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I, I graduated from Stanford and so I was moving to D.C. to get involved in educational reform and politics. My major like basically was, you know, blowing up our education system and making it better and um, working from the ground up and then eventually maybe running for office. That's where I was at after getting my master's and leaving school. And then I was on the Olympic team. And in my mind, like because I always had academics before sports, like I just was wanted to make sure I had all my ducks in a row. So if I got cut from the national team, which can happen at any moment, I was ready. I wasn't that person. It's like, oh, shoot, what do I do with my life now? The irony was is that I had this job waiting and then I ended up playing on the national team for 12 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept like pushing back this job for like a couple of finally They're like, you're not coming. And 
you know, ended up playing on, on the Olympic team and to the Olympics and, you know, started in television only because I was getting interviewed by ESPN after I think it was like a World Cup game against China. And afterwards, the producer came up and was like, oh, my gosh, you have so much energy, like just describing the game. Would you ever consider doing television? And I kind of just laughed because I'm like, oh, my gosh, open mic. Like I get fired first day. Like (laughs) I'm the kind of person I don't think before I talk, I just you're going to get the real me like right away. Um, And I just was like, oh, man, people don't want that. And I had some good friends around me that were like, you know what, go audition. Like, what's it going to hurt? Like, so they tell you you wouldn't be good at this, which is what you think anyway. Like, but the upside could be kind of cool. So I flew out to um, ESPN regional headquarters in Charlotte and auditioned with the great Beth Moens and ended up getting offered a job in college softball. And I was doing the women's college world series while still playing. And then uh, John Kruk, who as many of you know, is a major league baseball player, um, ex major league baseball player that does commentary for ESPN or did for baseball. And he was obsessed with college softball. And so he got the opportunity to join us for the women's college world series for two years. And it's interesting when a male crosses into a female sport, obviously there isn't like a ton of like, oh my gosh, he never played softball. What is he doing here? Like, he doesn't know anything. Like, that was a reaction from like nobody. And, you know, internally we were wondering how he would do, but he ended up totally kicking butt. Like, he was awesome in the booth. I loved working with him. We sat next to each other for two years and he knew his stuff. And honestly, like having never played the game himself, I realized how similar the sports really were because his knowledge of baseball was brought into softball in a way that just completely worked. And that's when it first occurred to me, like, why can't a woman do the reverse? Why can't a female who never played Major League Baseball, but was a high-level softball player, commentate on baseball? And so I kind of started, like, more sideline jobs, doing, you know, reports, very female, common jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. um, which allowed me to, to do that with no, you know, real, like, resistance. But it wasn't until I had a boss that was like, you know, you're basically breaking down the game from the sideline. Like, all you want to do is talk about why Mike Trout hit that outside pitch instead of maybe a story about his dog or like something different, you know. So why don't we put you in the booth? And I didn't really think it would be as big of a deal as it was just because I was already doing analyst work. Yeah. It's amazing, you guys, like how a geographical change of 50 yards. So basically just going from the field where it's like, oh, yeah, women are there all the time. We see them interviewing coaches and managers, and it's totally normal. Two, now she's in the booth going up the stairs and, like, has a headset on. Like, WTF, no way. (laughs) So I feel like that was when things really changed. And as far as I never really had to finagle anyone or, you know, push too hard. It was more of just once I was on air, just pushing to put the content that I wanted to put on, if that makes sense which then I think created this rule that people realize, okay, she's an analyst. She's not reporting. Absolutely. I think it was, was it Kurt Schilling you filled in for, for the first time? Yeah. Um, Good memory. So what, yeah. What was it like just getting that call that you're up, they want you to fill in the first woman ever in that booth. And then it turns into a permanent role. Just was that something you had ever imagined for yourself or was it just a total surreal moment? Yeah, it was crazy because I had done my very first Major League Baseball game that Monday from the booth. And I had had months to prepare. I was so excited for it. So Monday I go and do this ESPN2 game that probably not a lot of people were watching. And by Wednesday, Kurt Schilling had been suspended. And by Thursday, they called me to ask me to fill in for him on Sunday Night Baseball. 
So within like three days, I had done my very first game to then being asked to do the biggest game on our network that I had grown up watching. So I was really just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And then only having like two days to prepare for it. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, okay, like I literally asked the question, I'm like, well, who's playing? Like, I didn't even know who was going to be playing. And it was Cubs Dodgers. And to put more on top of that is my very first Sunday night baseball game. That Sunday, Jake Arietta threw the one and only no hitter. And for over 30 years of Sunday night baseball, there had never been a no hitter, still hasn't been one. My first night, he throws a no hitter. So, so it just was for a few reasons. <laughs> Yeah. And it was, and I, you know, then more people were tuning in. So then more people were reacting to a woman's voice being on that game. And it was really a surreal like week, to be honest, like that from doing my very first game to being asked to do Sunday night to the game that ended up happening, being a part of history to then the 24 hours that unfolded and news crew showing up at my front door with satellites and like just wanting my reaction on all the hate stuff. And it was, it was pretty insane. You and I have talked about this before because I asked you last summer what it was like to, you know, be such a public trailblazing figure for women in sports and getting so much negativity, I guess I'm going to say. I don't want to say hate. I mean, it is hate, but it's more than that. How do you handle that? How do you separate negativity from everything that you're doing? You know, it's been an interesting just understanding of like who I am, what I am and what I'm doing, because I think a lot of the negativity, hatred, all of that stems more from the people it's coming from and not me. That makes sense. Like I had to really look inside myself and be like, do I deserve to be here? Am I good enough? I didn't play Major League Baseball. Should I be doing this? And if I knew in my heart that this is something that I am good at and that I can do in a way that totally makes sense, then it allows me to look at the people that come at me like, shut up, you're a woman, go away, like, you should never be here, you're an idiot, like, just all the negativity. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, that it doesn't still affect me, but it's allowed me to really understand my own self-confidence because I learned that the moments I was weaker, if I was doubting myself, that noise got a whole lot louder because it was hitting on things that I was doubting in my own heart. And it's like that, I think, for anybody, female, male, anything that you're dealing with in life, when you're doubting or have insecurity about something, then any kind of question on it or, you know, anyone just asking or coming at you about it, it's really going to hit harder. But if you can really look inside yourself and say, you know what, I'm a strong woman, I'm smart, I understand the game, I've played the game, and I belong here, then I can handle a lot of that hatred in a way that doesn't really get to my core. Because I can't sit here and say that, oh, it doesn't affect me, because it does, I'm human. And honestly, the kind of human that I am is someone that wants to hear everything, unfortunately. (laughs) I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to listen to you because you hate me. I'm like, no, tell me, like, why do you hate me? Like, I want to know. My husband always laughs at me because he's like, why do you care about people that don't even like you? And I'm like, because I feel like there's something within them that I just want to know, like, why, because of my gender, does that make you so angry with me? Like, what is it that happened in your childhood or in your life, (laughs) you know, that makes me so against change that really has already happened? Just FYI, like we're in a place now where women are doing anything that they are capable of doing. So it's more of just what what are you fighting within yourself to not see that if people belong, they belong and you need to kind of just get over it. Absolutely. I don't know if you remember this, but before we had our talk at Fenway last summer, 
you were down at batting practice and taking pictures with people. And then when you came up and we were talking, you mentioned that somebody had actually said to you, to your face, something about like why you're doing your job when you didn't play professional baseball or like, what is this? It was something like, what does a softball player know about, you know, Sunday night baseball or something. And then all these people in the crowd started yelling at the guy for asking the question. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. I do remember that. That's so I forgot about that. Yeah. No, cause that stuff happened all the time where, yeah. and, and it was almost like the fan, he wasn't even yelling it like to be mean, like you shouldn't be here. It wasn't like that tone at all. He was legitimately like, wait, you didn't play baseball. Why are you? I know that's not like, I can't really say that in any way that doesn't sound like mean. But he was just sincerely acting. Yeah. And then everybody just like, I thought he was going to get beat up. (laughs) We were like, what? Like just started attacking him and yelling at him. And, you know, and I just walked away to let them all handle it. But (laughs) Let them do the dirty work for you. (laughs) Well, at a Sox-Yankees game, honestly, he might have gotten beat up. It would not be the first time. But I always feel like it's definitely true that the way that people treat you and react to you and talk to you is always more of a reflection of them and not you. You know, if if you're just doing your job and somebody reacts to you unkindly, unprovoked, it's such a reflection of who they are and, you know, the sadness inside them and not anything that you're putting out into the world, especially because you're always such a positive person when you're broadcasting, when you're on camera, when you're talking to people. So like it really says so much more about the other person than it does about you. Well, that's why I've always been so curious about them, because I I grew up where, you know, my dad raised three girls and a boy, all genderless, meaning like, if you can do it, you can do it. Like there was never a, okay, the boy's going to do this and the girls are going to do this and you get your pink and you get your blue. It's like, no, like, let's go play ball. Who wants to come? I never thought about gender as being a reason why you couldn't do something. And I was blessed, I guess, growing up that way. But then I also feel like I was in a bubble because even in college, like you didn't hear ever someone say, oh, I'm sorry, you're a woman. You can't take this class. You can't play the sport or that just didn't I that never came into my ears or knowledge really until I started entering television and baseball. And and I played baseball as a kid and I was the only girl. And I don't remember even being the only girl until I look at the pictures, because even as a child, I look at my own kids. They're not going, oh, she's a girl, she's a boy, they can't do this. They don't know any different. They're like, they might have looked at me and been like, oh, there's a girl. And then I threw the ball to them and they're like, oh, there's a ball player. That's just how the simplicity of all this should be, right? It's just like, okay, I recognize that you might look different or things might be different, but can you do X? Can you run this company? Can you run this marathon? Can you teach or do all these different things? Like if the answer is yes, forget about what the source is, right? I've also learned the last five years that realistically, there's a lot of people out there that aren't there. And my job, I feel like it's just to keep being me, you know, because I'm not going to come fight them or yell at them. That's not to me the way to teach them. To me, it's just, let's just let, let there be more of us. Let there be a female doctor in this person's life that like works on him. And he's like, wait, there's no women that are doctors. What's happening? You know, like let there be more and more women, a president of the United States, be a female, like all these different roles are going to happen. And pretty soon, I just feel like you're going to have to wake up and be like, are you going to be a part of 2020? Are you going to still be back in 1950? 
Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because, you know, if someone does something once and it kind of shocks the world, like if Jackie Robinson had just played in one baseball game and then he'd been like, I quit. People are racist. People are terrible. You only do something once. You don't give people the chance to like learn to adapt, to take time. Not everybody is able to quickly change their mind or learn anything. You know, things take time. Things take perseverance. Yeah. You know, OK, yeah. so that's it. We just give up. We stop going. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, but that's kind of why we should keep going. That's the exactly. exact reason. That's why we're here. Yeah. It's to keep, you know, if we, if we give up, you know, they win. And it, to me, it's, it's our job to just to keep educating. It, it's not about just being on opposite sides. It's just about hearing each other. And that's why I guess I genuinely try to hear the people that, that hate and don't like, because I want to know, why do you feel this way? But I do think sometimes it's just there are people that you just can't talk to. You know, you can hear them, but at a certain point, someone's going to show you who they are. And if they show the, if they show you that no matter how much you listen, no matter how open you are to them, that they're not going to change and they're just going to keep attacking you. I feel like there's a point where you say, okay, well, on to the next person, because maybe the next person I can actually have a meaningful dialogue that produces positive change with, but not this person. I'm pretty curious, raising two boys. Are they at the age yet where they're kind of seeing the negativity that comes your way? And if not, is that something you worry about them seeing people saying horrible things about their mother for just doing their job? Or are those conversations you've had with them? Yeah, I mean, we talk about it. My, I mean, my youngest doesn't know at all. Um, he's in kindergarten. And mm -hmm. <laughs> just, I'm just mom. It was interesting. I taught a class at Stanford last month, February. So I don't know where we're at. We're in April. So <laughs> the end of February, I taught a class and I had actually my oldest come and join me and just sit um, in the class. And we got into the, the class was um, gender and sports inequality. So it was kind of a perfect topic. And so we got into all of this and he ended up raising his hand at the end. And I was like, yes, Caleb. <laughs> and he was like, mom, I never knew this about you. Because in his mind, his mom's on TV, like people know her, like cool, she does this baseball thing, like whatever. But he never saw it as like, because like I said before, kids just know that, okay, you just do what you do. Like, why would you not be able to do this? Because you're a woman. Like, And so when he was hearing all of this, and not just me, but that women wouldn't be able to get the same opportunities as men in a variety of different things. It was kind of interesting because he didn't even have a question. He just was like, I never knew this. And everyone kind of turned and looked at us. And it was kind of this powerful, like, here he is as 10 years old going, wow, could women really not have the same opportunities? I never knew that this was the challenge that you ever even faced. So we talked about it a little bit after that. But yeah, I still think I want to keep his world really where it should be in that we're in 2020 and this next generation and the generation after that. It's only going to be, I believe, seen as it doesn't matter what sex, what gender, what race, anything. Like, just be you. And if you can do this job, that's all that matters. You know, who you are as a human and not all the things on the outside. They always say, you know, things like sexism, racism, hatred, those are not things that you're born with. Those are things that you learn from other people. 
it's just, it's interesting to me because, you know, when you took your job with the Mets, there were plenty of other sports broadcasters and analysts and commentators like Pedro and A-Rod and David Ross, who all had jobs like your job with the Mets, but were also on TV and they weren't getting any of the same kind of backlash for having these jobs. People weren't saying, oh, I wonder if it's a conflict of interest for David Ross to be on ESPN and also be a special advisor to the Cubs. But a lot of people were saying that when you took your job with the Mets, how did that feel? Again, it's like, it's just frustrating at times when you feel like you see the world how it should be. And then the reality comes in. But at the end of the day, like Pedro Martinez won a championship with the Red Sox. Like everyone's always going to associate him with the Red Sox. And for him to be able to, well, first of all, sorry, like for him to be able to work with a team and work in television, but then also for him to be able to make comments or not, like they're just seen in a different light. And for me to work with the Mets, I didn't play with them. And so me versus David Wright, who also works with the Mets, like if David Wright was doing television, people would be like, well, of course David Wright's with the Mets. He is a Met. Like that's who he is. Alex Rodriguez is a Yankee. That's what people think. David Ross, Cubs, like all these names of people in television that are with teams. It just is easier for people to swallow. When I became a part of the Mets, they were like, oh, she's really working. Like, she's actually doing stuff with the Mets. Like, this is different, which I honestly could tell you that most people that are working for a team are doing stuff. They're not just kissing babies and putting on a hat. Like, they're actually helping that team and organization. But it's just easier for people to swallow in general. So that was just something that I felt like you know, really blew people away. It just shocked me all the time. Like everywhere I would go, like, oh, here comes Miss Met. Like it was literally I was running the team as if I was Jeff Wilpon, as if I was (laughs) the GM. Like I literally like couldn't believe that my role, which is in such a minor way, I wasn't with them full time at all, but all of a sudden I became like Mrs. Met. And it just, it bothered me only because I never want to be just one thing. I was definitely working with the Mets, loved my job, but I was working with ESPN first. That was my job. That was my priority. And people just couldn't get past it the way they could with others. And the reality of it is that I ended up having to leave my job with the Mets. And that's, I think, when this has been going on for 20 years with people working with teams and in television, and not one time has that ever been a problem to, to this case. And then I honestly can't be in a front office right now, which which is sad, you know, because I enjoyed the learning and the knowledge of what you're able to be able to get in those rooms. Um, but like I had to kind of basically choose. Honestly, I mean, maybe I'm just looking at it backwards. But in my way of thinking, the fact that you didn't play for the Mets would actually make you a more ideal person to have these dual roles because your bias wouldn't be the same as someone like you know when Pedro talks about the Red Sox he's like I love the Red Sox more than anything I played for a ton of other teams but the Red Sox are always my home you know he's in the Hall of Fame in a Red Sox cap you know you would say okay well there's definitely a lot of bias or when David Ortiz was on Fox with A-Rod and like Poppy's picking the Red Sox to win everything every single time because he loves the Red Sox and people are like oh well you know he's biased because the Red Sox were his team that wouldn't be the case with you because you worked for the Mets, but you didn't play for the Mets. So I guess maybe I just see it differently that that would have made you more fitting to have a broadcasting role and a team role. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I feel like can be debated on even if anyone that's working with a team should be involved in television, like overall, but it should be like together. We should all be looked at as one. Like if you're involved with the team, 
basically on any kind of payroll and you're working for any kind of television network or even radio, you know, is this something that should be allowed or should not be? Kind of to piggyback off of that, like you said, you resigned from the Mets and then you were the second longest tenured analyst on Sunday Night Baseball. And now a little bit of a change in your career and you're no longer doing either. How has this transition been for you, not only professionally, but like from a mental standpoint with dealing with all that change? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of interesting in that I didn't really get to see it happen since there hasn't been a season. So for this year, like it's it's been crazy for five years of just Sunday Night Baseball and the Mets. And it's been like, it's been a lot. And then now this year, transitioning off of Sunday into this new role, I was kind of excited and curious to see what these next few years will bring and it'll happen. But for right now, it's been this weird, okay, like, you know, what, what are we doing? And what, you know, for someone that's in a a newer capacity, like what does my new role look like when all sports have halted? But I think mentally it's been more of just a challenge. And I I've always loved the next challenge. Okay. What's next? You know, what's next? Um, That's just been my mentality, I guess, throughout all of this. And that's why I think I just keep on, I didn't stop at college softball and I wanted to do, you know, college baseball and then major league baseball. And then I wanted to be involved in the front office and, it's like, you know, and now I want to tell more stories and do more features and do, you know, kind of some different cutting edge stuff. And I want to work the World Series. Like, there's just so many more things that I want to be a part of and do. Um, and I'm just kind of interested to see what's next. So we're going to ask everybody this because we think it'll just be a really interesting thing to see how everyone's going to give very different answers. We're going to ask everybody what their favorite sports memory is. And it can be from a game you played in, a game that you called, just a game that you watched or went to. I mean, it's easy for me. I mean, I have I have a ton of memories, you know, calling games, being a party games, playing in games. But if it's number one, it's on its own island and nothing touches it. And it's winning a gold medal for your country. I mean, I know it sounds cliche and just like, of course, but. Um, I don't think I realized watching Olympics growing up as a kid, what that really meant until you are there. And for me, it was in Athens, Greece, and I was 23 years old and just really didn't even know what to expect. And living in that Olympic village with 10,000 athletes from all over the world, more athletes represented from countries than even the United Nations, sitting down with, you know, soccer players from Iraq and a high jumper from Egypt and being able to travel the world in one dining hall was is incredible. And it also gave you a sense of appreciation when you were taking the field with USA across your chest. And then icing on the cake, because obviously you're in your sport, competitive, you want to win. But then that flag is raised and the song, our national anthem, which we've heard a million times, but all of a sudden it just hits you in a way that you never knew could hit you. That was, to me, just the most incredible, like, and you got to understand, I'm someone that's very prideful, not only to my country, but also in like human rights and just so many different things that I had studied even in college. So just feeling the gravity of the Olympic Games and at that time in 2004 and what was happening in the world and then having this tremendous pride for the country that you're representing beyond your sport was so powerful. And I still like even when I hold that medal, it takes me back to that day in 2004 when we got them around our neck in Athens, Greece. 
That's incredible. You just honestly gave me like the chills, even just replaying that for us. But we're going to let you go. We just want to say thank you so much. I think it's so funny that in your Twitter bio, it says, be the change you want to see in the world. And you so embody that. I know I'm speaking on behalf of both of us, Gabrielle and myself, um, younger women in sports media. You as such an incredible trailblazer to look up to is just, it's just like a priceless thing for us. We're like forever indebted to women like you. And we just want to say, we're so honored to have you as our first guest and thank you so much. And we hope to have you back on in the future. You guys are kicking butt and Girl the Game is honestly something that I am so like proud to like see. And I know that sounds very like I'm okay with it or something, but it makes me happy because honestly, even just the title Girl at the Game, like it makes me think of my whole childhood of being the girl watching the game and, you know, for us to be able to be in the space together and doing it so well and how respected you guys are and just what you're bringing and how many listeners are going to continue to listen to you and, you know, read everything that you have to put out there. It just, it's awesome and it's needed. So I'm grateful. Thank you guys. Thank you so much, Jess. It means the world. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> Thank you Anytime. for putting up with us. Anytime. <laughs> So that interview with Jess was so much fun, and we hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed it as much as we did. Every time we get to talk to Jess, we come away super inspired by everything she's done for women in sports, and we're so grateful that she took the time to come on and chat with us and give us this very enlightening interview. So yeah, that's our show for today, but we have a bunch more interviews lined up for you guys already. Next episode, we'll be talking to Anna Horford, host of the Horford Happy Hour podcast, sister of NBA center Al Horford, and the queen of Weird Celtics Twitter. It's a fun one. Thanks so much for tuning in to our first episode. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment if you liked what you heard. And connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Girl at the Game. Goodbye, my friends. <laughs> no, that's too weird. <laughs> we need a sign okay. off. And it can't be this. Uh-huh. Let's go get a uh-huh. shot. Hey, uh, tell me what you got, little mama.